Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to what's going on locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. We'll return to civility, folks. The Speed of Laughter Project by John Sweeney. John. It's about time. Was on, yeah. He was on the show, oh, what, five months ago. That's a great episode, folks. Go to stlintune.com and check that episode. John, a.k.a. Jiggly Boy. And <laughs> oh, I'll just leave it there. You okay. can Google Jiggly Boy, J-I-G-G-L-Y-B-O-Y. Jiggly Boy. Jiggly Boy. It's a great video on YouTube. The Return to Civility. Pay attention to what people around you are trying to accomplish. And help them accomplish it if you can. There's a good chance they're trying to accomplish the same thing you are. It might be more fun to try to accomplish it together. That's good. Yeah. And we have two guests here that are accomplishing things together. Okay. They are doing some marvelous things and something that will take place on September the 25th, which is Sunday coming up. And Suzanne Corbett is here in studio. She is an award-winning writer, culinary teacher, and food historian whose work has appeared in local and national publications. She's the author of four books, and they deal all with the culinary arts. She's a Telly Award winner producer, writer of the documentary short, Vintage Missouri, 200 Years of Missouri Wine, and served as the Living History Foodways Interpreter and Research Food Historian with the National Parks at the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial. And also with her is Andy Hahn. He is the Executive Director of the Campbell House Museum. Folks, if you haven't been to the Campbell House Museum, you need to go, especially all you St. Louisans out there who always miss all these treasures here in our city. Andy has degrees in history and art history from St. Louis University and Washington University. He was an art curator. He has been the executive director of the Campbell House Museum for 20 years and volunteers numerously in a, in a variety of roles here in the St. Louis area for Opera Theater St. Louis, Lafayette Square, and I can't read my writing on this third one, Andy. Tower Park? Tower Grove Park, that's what it is. <laughs> Welcome, Suzanne and Andy, to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. And you guys are here to have this unique event, as I described earlier. You're trying to accomplish things separately but together. You guys work together to accomplish this event called the Farm Table to the Gilded Table. Yes. And explain what that is exactly so it gives people an understanding. The Farm Table to the Gilded Table is the ultimate birthday badge for General Ulysses S. Grant, or I should say President Ulysses S. Grant, or both. We can call it both. But for Ulysses S. Grant's 200th birthday, it was his bicentennial year. And St. Louis is unique because we have two sites that have a marvelous connection to Grant. Whitehaven, which was his father-in-law's estate, which he then acquired, where he farmed and where he met his wife. His farm failed, unfortunately. Uh, well, he wasn't a very good farmer. but Maybe good for us because he became Yes, president. it was, I was going to say, because then he left here and... Save the nation, among other things. Right. And then we have the Campbell House, where Robert Campbell, who was the owner of that house, was a personal friend of Grant's. It goes all the way back to when Grant was saddling firewood, if I'm correct, mm -hmm. and became great friends and dined at the Campbell House during the Gilded Age, where there were 10 to 12 course dinners and 
wow. all the finery and all the wonderful flatware and silver and fall to all that goes with fine dining. And so what we're doing is we're taking those two concepts of a farm table and all the fanciful things that you use to set a gilded table age and put it together and celebrate it to bring attention to both sides and do it with a culinary focus with the history that complements both sites with Grant. And that's going to be September 25th. It's 5.30 to 9.30, and we'll get more into some of the details of that. But let's define a couple things for people because they may not be familiar with the Campbell House. Mm -hmm. And exactly, I know you mentioned Robert Campbell, and Ulysses S. Grant was a friend. What was about the firewood again? I'm going to let Andy do that because he's the executive director there. Okay. So one of the things that Grant was doing in St. Louis before the Civil War, in addition to trying his hand at farming on a parcel of land that his father gave him was as a side job, he would gather firewood on his farm and cart it into St. Louis to sell it. Wow. As a means of income. Wow. And so that was one of his jobs leading up to the Civil War that Grant did regularly. Interesting. Yeah. And the Campbell House has, it's probably the most historic house well, one of the most historic houses. I'm sure you'd probably say it's the most historic house. <laughs> well, maybe a better term is the most preserved, the best preserved. That's a, that's a good description. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and explain where it is and why, it, why it's important and why it's the most preserved house. So uh, Campbell House is now in the heart of downtown St. Louis. It's at the corner of 15th and Locust Streets. It's one block west of the central branch of the St. Louis Public Library. It's a couple blocks north of the Stiefel Theater or the old Kiel Opera House, as they called mm -hmm. it, um, and a couple blocks from Union Station. So it's what's now considered the West End of downtown. But in 1851, when the house was built, it was the very edge of the city. In fact, it was just a couple blocks inside the city limits of St. Louis. Wow. So the Campbell House was the first built in a new neighborhood called Lucas Place. Uh, and it was designed and became a place apart, a, a different type of place to live in St. Louis. All of the homes were single family detached homes. And this is the first neighborhood in St. Louis where that was the case. You know, now we take that for granted that a neighborhood is people living in houses with yards. And, right. uh, in, uh, pre-Civil War St. Louis, that just wasn't the case. People lived very compactly and densely. They shared walls with their neighbors. They tended to have very small yards or no yards at all. Imagine walking out. You can imagine a neighborhood in Soulard walking out of your front door onto the sidewalk. Um, uh, but here was a neighborhood, Lucas Place, where that was going to be different. Uh, there would be yards, there would be large setbacks, there would be shade trees and only homes, no commercial enterprises, no corner stores, no uh, bakeries. Uh, so it felt very quiet. Uh, and that was one of the it was the suburbs back then. Yeah, exactly. It was, the, it was the suburbs and it was intended to be a wealthy neighborhood because the houses that were built were, were very large and the Campbell house is, is no exception. So the Campbells moved in a few years after the house was built and it remained their family home for almost the next 90 years. Wow. Uh, and it's preserved, as you mentioned, simply because first the Campbells lived there for so long, uh, they were the first house built, but by the 1930s, the Campbells were living 
in the last housing. So in their tenure in this building, they saw the neighborhood kind of come into being and, and reach its peak. And then they saw a long, slow decline uh, where every one of their neighbor's houses got torn down till they were literally living in the last house. In the, neighborhood. the second reason for that is uh, very shortly after death of the last Campbell, it was selected as a great candidate for preservation. Uh, not only was it the last of its kind in the neighborhood, but it was filled to the brims with interesting objects that told part of St. Louis's history that had long disappeared. And that's the, the history of the steamboat era, the 1850s, 60s, into the Gilded Age, as Suzanne said, into the 1870s and 80s. By the 1940s, that had, was almost all gone in St. Louis. And you could argue today that it it's really is all gone. Mm -hmm. uh, so Campbell House was seen as a, as a unique opportunity to save a sliver of city's history both in the structure, the story that it told and what was on the inside. So just a few years after the death of the last Campbell, the museum opened. Um, so the building has never suffered the fate of being neglected, falling into disrepair, being used as a rooming house or a boarding house or a factory. It went from being the Campbell's home to the museum. So the layout of the rooms, beautiful features like an amazing cast iron fence. Um, the original mantles and doorways and layouts. And most excitingly for uh, most visitors is it's still filled with a fabulous collection of uh, Victorian decorative arts, tables, chairs, paintings, like fixtures, silver, some of their clothing, carriages are still in the carriage house. And oh, well, perhaps most uh, importantly, an unbelievable collection of documents, you know, Stuff is so only so interesting to the point that you could tell someone about it. Right. I mean, it's interesting to look at, but without a story or something behind it, you know, how great is that? So, uh, amazing collection of letters, receipts, checkbooks, um, a few diaries that all tell the story of what it was like to live in St. Louis at this time, what it was like to live in this house, documents that even highlight stories of some of these individual objects. So it's really a step back in time to come, to come and see the game. Interesting. And we were talking off air. One of those documents was a handwritten recipe book mm -hmm. that Suzanne, you got a hold of, and you kind of went through that, put it together and I guess updated it for common language and terms. But before you talk about that and what you did to do that, define the Gilded Age so people understand what that is. Okay, the Gilded Age is classically placed right after the Civil War mm -hmm. and ends right at the First World War. Okay. Okay, the height of it was the 1870s, 1880s. Mark Twain coined the term, mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of interesting because he had sort of a... Uh, uh, the kind of a disgust kind of uh, made fun of the Gilded Age and you know, as, yeah, he made yeah, I think it was, it was supposed to be kind of a, a, a not uh, complimentary term. No, no, yeah, it was it, like it was just like a, a, a sow's purse yeah. kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, satire almost. Yeah, yeah, it was satire. Exactly, it was a satire. And, but it was interesting because Twain himself 
immersed himself in all the finery the Gilded Age. Exactly. Could. I mean, he yeah. was just... He was a child of the Gilded Age. I mean, age. oh my gosh. Yeah, he, he loved to flaunt what he had and what he didn't have. Oh, uh, and it, it just was amazing. And he also indulged in quite a few of those fanciful dinners. <laughs> so there, there was a, a distinct kind of style. And like you said, the table was set a certain way and you had, you know, there was some protocol and procedures that you would follow. You wouldn't just, you know, run into the house like people do now or get in the car and go through the drive through of wherever it's <laughs> going to be. And that was dinner. Well, you know, it, it's interesting to note that how you dine to find who you were. Mm. One of the first things you do, even today, one of the first things you do to improve yourself, to improve your status, to improve the way you live is through what you're eating and how you're eating it. So are you eating steak? Are you eating hamburger? Are you eating, you know, on a China plate or on a Chinette plate? Right. You right. know, it's there, there's a lot of, of, differences of the haves and the have not that evolve around the table itself. Mm -hmm. And at this particular time, if you wanted to improve yourself, that's one of the first things you did. You, you bought nice dishes. You aspired to have a nice tablecloth. And there was a, a publication called Godey's Ladies right, Book. Right. And it was sort of like the Better Homes and Gardens of its day where it 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 promoted to the General housewife, these are things that you can do to live well and look well, look well and help your family go up the ladder. Right. You know, and that was with manners and things like that, too. But um, it in, it emphasized all these wonderful things you could set on the table because then that improved your status. And people ask all the time, well, did you really eat 12, 14 courses? Well, you were presented 12 or 14 courses. You didn't absolutely have to to eat everything. But the idea was that you cook to impress. It was an impressive thing to show you what you had. You could afford to give all these beautiful things to your dining guests. And it wasn't like mom or dad was back in the kitchen preparing 12 or 14 dishes. There was a, a, a team of chefs back there or cooks back there doing all that work. Chefs and service people and the Campbells, luckily they owned a hotel, the Southern Hotel, and they could bring in support from the staff from there to help produce some of these fanciful mm -hmm. meals. But your average everyday person didn't, of course, have that, but they would still inspire to be able to have those types of finery that you could upgrade your table. Okay. Is it the larger soup tureen, uh, whether it was a condiment, silver or pewter, mm -hmm. uh, a condiment uh, stand that you could put out with your salt and the pepper, your vinegars and things. I mean, those were status symbols. Crystal glasses, I'm sure. I mean, every age had a right thing that was status. Right. During at the Campbell House, one of the status things that are on the table that are often overlooked is the celery vase. That's a big deal. That's the helpful. celery was very important. So you arranged your celery like it was like a. Uh, like a bouquet. Yeah, just like a bouquet. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it was part of your your decorations on the table. Wow. I mean, you could eat them also, but you wanted to show people, yes, look what I have. The celery was expensive. It, very, it was a luxury good. Wow. It was a luxury item. It was hard to to uh, produce, particularly um, 
during the winter months because everything was right. the house and you brought things in. But if you think about just celery, it went from being pr presented in a vase to a celery tray. And that celery tray, you might have remembered when you were a kid or your grandma or your mom had a celery tray. Well, then that celery tray fell out of fashion and it became a roll tray or a cracker dish or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. So it just keeps changing. And all the things that you put on the table, knives, forks, fish fork, uh, cheese, knife, it, it can go on and on and right, on. Right. Green soup, spoon. My favorite thing that I always like to talk about is the ice cream fork, which everybody uses today as a spork. Spork. Yeah. They were way ahead of their time. <laughs> they were way ahead of their time. And I just wish that they would be elevated back to its original ice cream <laughs> fork. They, they were ready for the zombies to occur. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking to Suzanne Corbett and Andy Hahn about an activity that's going to take place September 25th, the farm table to the gilded table. And that's going to be at the Campbell House and also at Whitehaven. It's going to be like a, what I would call a... What do they call those dinner, dinners where you eat at progressive one? progressive dinner? Right. There you go, Andy. Thank you. And uh, I want to come back to you get this manuscript that's very old and people's it's all handwritten and these recipes. And I'm still going to dig as to what was your interest in food, which got you going to do what you're doing now. But when you get this manuscript, what what do you think when you get this thing and and maybe you get instructions like hey we want you to kind of look at this and write this down for us well first you have to realize that my background was food history i always had an interest in old recipes mm. i had an old mom an old dad that was raised with old style cooking ways so when i was told take it off the fire i knew exactly what that meant mm. or you know different types of things like that. I right. it it's a level of of uh food knowledge mm -hmm. that was passed down that other people didn't get. So I was able to take the Campbell collection, use what I had from my background and was able to use that as a base to crack those recipes, update them and move them forward because you can see exactly how the assumption of what a culinary skill was. Mm -hmm. They assumed that you knew if you took flour, water, yeast, and stir, bake, you knew you would get bread, and you knew what to do with that. Right. And that was one of the recipes. Not how much flour, right. how much yeast, how long to knead it, what was the temperature of the oven other than slow or fast. Right. Uh, so you, have, you, you assumed that. And when we were working with the recipes for the event at Elissa's Grand Site, Whitehaven, and Campbell House, some of the chefs today, when they would give you a recipe to include in our booklet, was almost the same way because the chef's former meal will just give you a list of ingredients. Right. And the assumption is there you already have the skill right. to be able to pr produce this. So, And so when you updated, you, you included all those missing statements. Right. And I think one of the biggest surprises, I had volunteered at the, the Campbell House from the late 1980s when I first got started and all I saw was the facsimile that was presented and I thought oh yeah we can do this you know this was something that we were going to do on and off for like 20 years maybe and we finally moved it forward and then Andy gave me the original oh man manuscript to work with and it was like double what was the facsimile so it was quite a little bit of surprise <laughs> to say the least. 
But it had all different sorts of things. You could see the food trends that was in there. What popular items were like gingerbread was big. Oysters. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's lots. Seven or eight oysters. There's seven oyster dishes in there. Really? Because everybody ate oysters from very, very poor because you got them canned. Or there the highfalutin society dinners where you would get them shipped in from the east in barrels filled with cornmeal and water. Wow. I was going to say they weren't flown in. <laughs> they weren't raw either. No, they, yeah, they, they, actually, they, they were. Well, actually, they 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 were raw when they got here. They were right, but they they didn't eat them raw. They, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They they no, no. <laughs> no, that was goat. That wasn't gilded back then. <laughs> no, because you wanted to make them fancy, because just plain people would eat them raw or canned or something. You had to do something fun with them, like yeah. bake them or or scallop them or a variety of different types. Seeing that plain people didn't know they were trendsetters. <laughs> oh, and who would have thought that they were were considered really fancy now? Yeah. yeah. Very high-priced item. But that's because they sacked the oyster fields. They, right. You know, they're... Over eight. They over eight. We're going to come back uh, and talk more with Suzanne Corbett and Andy Hahn about the event, the Farm Table to the Gilded Table, which takes place September 25th. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. Come back for our next segment. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune. You know, each time that we plan a show for St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis in Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, Faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There you'll find every show from our first to our most current. Use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered. 
and drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. You can do that at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis Intune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're having a conversation with Suzanne Corbett and Andy Hahn about an activity that's going to take place on September the 25th. That's a Sunday. It's called the Farm Table to the Gilded Table. And it's a culinary celebration honoring Ulysses S. Grant's bicentennial that will include some historically inspired foods, yummy, libations, yummy, and entertainment at both the Campbell House in downtown West and Whitehaven, which is the Ulysses S. Grant historic site. And some of St. Louis's most accomplished chefs are going to be creating the evening's foods at these two locations. And let's talk a little bit about how this is going to take place, uh, Andy and Suzanne, uh, you guys can kind of bounce back and forth uh, on this particular question. What can people expect? Where do they go first? Sure. And, and I know it's 5.30 to 9.30, and it's like a progressive dinner, but you were- We're calling it a movable feast. I like that. <laughs> I like that. So guests buy a ticket to start at one location or the other. Okay. And that's, you know, uh, designed as kind of a crowd control more than okay. anything so that- we don't have, you know, we left it open, you know, two thirds may have start, started at one location. There may have been a traffic jam, so to speak. So, so you buy a ticket to start at one location, you go to that location. And if you start at the Campbell house, you go start at the Gilded Age, you're welcome back to 1875 and the food and libations there, um, all reflect things that were served at the Gilded table. Um, here's an opportunity to enjoy those. Um, at both locations, most of the food is outside. And so that's why we chose it this time of year as right. well. So we can partake in the outside. Uh, and then as visitors are there, they have an opportunity to come in and see the inside of the house as well. Um, see that actual gilded table where Grant dined, um, in uh, the dining room. Uh, and then from there, they get in their car and drive to Whitehaven. They repeat the process. Okay. At Whitehaven, it's the farm table. Mm. And so it's all food and drink inspired by the farm so things are maybe not quite as fancy well whole hog isn't going to find itself on the candles table let me For tell sure. you. Whole, whole hog we're going to have a whole hog that <laughs> chef greg baffler's doing from daily smokehouse oh. and along with that we have lou rook from annie guns who will be producing a smoked catfish mm. i think that has a sorghum glaze mm. and uh, an apple slaw and apples were part of the crops that were grown on the estate when Grant was there and throughout the farm itself. Uh, let's see, we also have a heritage chicken called Poulet Rouge that Cassie Vars, another James Beard nominee, is going to be producing with a, with a, white, uh, with a wheat berry salad. We have a recent James Beard best chef for the Midwest, Ben Welsh. We'll be doing a great stone ground cornbread with uh, tomato jam and tomato butter with a barbecue spice. Mm. And 
Grant loved gingerbread. Really? Oh my God, he loved, he loved gingerbread. So Yolklore's Chef Mary will be doing a gingerbread trifle that's laced with a caramel cream. And before you leave, before you get your marching orders off the place, you're going to have a roll of Necco wafers as a little parting gift, just like Grant would have given his soldiers when they were out in the field during the Civil War. Yeah. Grant was one of the first people, one of the first generals that wanted candy included in the rations for his soldiers because it upped their morale and gave them a sugar boost, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. We're, we're getting ready to charge here. Have some sugar. <laughs> and before you leave the Campbell house, you get a little bit of Busy Bee chocolate, which is chocolate that has been recreated in the Busy Bee style, which was an old candy company that was in St. Louis that was the favorite of Hugh Campbell, who was, I would say, their number one patron. Wouldn't you say that, Andrew? I would think so. He was a... Uh... Hugh Campbell was a benefactor of uh, a children's orphanage called Father Dunn's Newsboys. Right, right. Uh, where the whole tradition of old Newsboys Day comes from. And as part of his patronage of that organization, holidays and special occasions, he would literally send over trucks of candy for the boys to enjoy at Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter uh, to the point where there was uh, one year he spent I think it was over five thousand dollars wow on chocolate and remind you this is a time when chocolate cost about 25 or 30 cents a pound right we're talking a lot of chocolate <laughs> yeah that was a lot of money back then it was yeah it was a, a significant amount but he he loved the orphanage and he loved that he could help these boys who didn't have a home and you mentioned entertainment was going to be taking place off the air. What kind of entertainment can we expect to hear at uh, both places? Well, there's live entertainment at, at both locations. Um, at the Campbell House, we have the Independent Silver Band, which is a 15-piece brass band, which is going to play music from the 1870s. And in 1873, when, the, when Grant was a guest of the Campbells at, at a dinner, uh, one of the many times he visited, um, the evening ended with the United States Arsenal Band marching up in front of the Campbell House at about midnight and played an impromptu concert Wow! for the president and his guests and the 4,000 people that had gathered in front of the building. Uh, <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. Uh, Grant's, it's a good band. Grant yeah. stepped out and enjoyed the music and waved to the crowd. And he's quoted in the newspaper at the time and how the reporter got this quote, I have no clue, but he said something to the effect that uh, how tiresome this was to have to come out and wave to everyone, <laughs> stand there to be viewed. And Mrs. Campbell is quoted as saying, well, General, it's just to please the people who honor and love you so. <laughs> <laughs> so he stood out there and, and apparently, the, according to the paper, the band played for an hour. So oh, my it was, gosh. It was one o'clock in the morning before the apparently the that dinner ended up. And so Independent Silver Band's going to... Uh, be out in the garden kind of replicating that that sound with world. period instruments yes exactly right that's a big uh, deal uh, and at uh, whitehaven we have dance discovery who okay. has gonna have live music and dance demonstrations of, of, of course because that was a main form of entertainment in the 19th century and uh, uh and if you're lucky you'll get to learn how to dance yeah they'll invite you to join in was True. was grant a dancer you know, I'm not sure if he was a dancer or not. But, That's a great uh, question. It is a good question. I would assume that maybe not. From what I've heard, he's a little on the shy side. Well, but I think most people were a dancer to some degree or another right. in that 
era because dancing is part of, yeah. Whether you were really good and liked it or whether you just kind of did it as part of your social duty. Indeed. It's it's sort of like the table manners again. Right, right. You were expected to be able to behave and, and, Certain things you had to know. A waltz or a dance. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know he was five feet, two inches tall. I thought he was a little taller than that. He was short. I didn't know he was actually that short. Yeah, I was was like, seriously. Well, how tall tall is Stan Prather, who was going to be portraying Grant for us? Oh, he's a little, he's taller than that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that night we'll have a... the president will be in attendance. The president with will be in attendance with his bodyguard. Uh, and I believe that Robert Campbell will also be home. So we'll have reenactors there portraying both of those and, figures. And we'll have reenactor our uh, our park interpreters that will be dressed as period costumes mm-hmm. for uh, the farm table as farmhands and so it's, now, it's going to be a wonderful event. Now, I think we've we've described where the Campbell House is on Locust Street. Whitehaven, is is this near Grant's Farm? Right across the street from Grant's Farm. Right. In okay. fact, Grant's Farm is part of the original Dent right. Grant estate. So it's going to be where, where the barn is there and, Correct. you know, the trail comes, the Grant's Trail comes by there. and Exactly. It's, you know, by the parking lot for Grant's. Exactly. And that's actually where visitors will park that evening. Okay. Yeah. Well, for overflow. Yeah, for overflow. Okay. But it, it gets confusing because, you know, Whitehaven is technically Grant's farm as well. Um, <laughs> uh, but Whitehaven is the National Park Service site across from Grant's farm. Gotcha. And the centerpiece of that is the Whitehaven house. Okay. The Denton family home that, that Mrs. Grant was born in and that she and Ulysses later owned. And that had been moved Correct? Or no, that, the, the original location? The original it's, okay, yeah. so the barn was moved or something was moved. You're thinking of hard scrabble. Yes. The cabin. Okay. Well, well that's been moved that. Well, that original It's been moved site, many times. Okay. Yeah, it's originally it was on a site that is marked in the old St. Paul Cemetery off of Rock Hill Road. Really? And uh, there was a coffee company, Blanky, I believe, it's a mm-hmm. coffee company, that uh, bought it and put it on display during the 1904 World's I think Fair. at first it went to Old Orchard and Webster, mm-hmm. and then it went to the World's Fair. And then after the fair, Adolphus Bush Got it. bought it, and he later installed it at, Grant. at Grant's farm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's got quite a house. Wow. But that's the cabin that Grant built by hand. Okay. That was his farm cabin where, as a farmer, he was going to, where he lived with his wife and his family to you know, making success of farming. And obviously it was not. So. Like the original mobile home. Right. <laughs> oh. well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because it's the second of Grant's homes that was moved around from at place to place. His birthplace was sat on a barge and in from, from Ohio, then moved up for an exhibition and then moved back. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. But this is going to be a great example of that, that yin and yang of, of two separate, very diverse styles of of living and food and but it all celebrates one man. Right. Right. Grant and and really Robert Campbell was, you know, as I did some research for the show, you know, came from nothing. And uh He had a fascinating in, life. Type of life that people don't have right anymore. <laughs> yeah. He he was uh, a big entrepreneur. He was. He he came to St. Louis as a 19-year-old kid. Uh, he got stepped off the levee, and one of the first people he met was a man named Henry Shaw. 
who was also a recent immigrant. He had come a few years earlier and, and took a liking to Robert. They became fast friends, a friendship that would last over their whole lives. Um, Shaw got involved in the hardware business, but Campbell got involved in the fur trade business, which is altogether much more exciting than hardware uh, because it involved him going west to the Rocky Mountains and mm -hmm. having amazing adventures and seeing things that very few people hardly any had ever seen before. He's one of the very first people, white men, that is, to enter Yellowstone, what's today Yellowstone National wow. Park, to see the geysers, uh, to see the Great Salt Lake. It was an exciting time to be alive, and that was the foundation of his business kind of acumen and a whole series of businesses that he built was that experience in the mountains, right? the, the, the people he met, skills that he learned, the territory that he became familiar with. He used all of those uh, as part of his, his business. And in fact, later in his life, at the request of now the new president grant, he was appointed to the United States Indian Commission in 1969. Really? Wow. Uh, uh, in an attempt to fix what they called the Indian problem. Right, right. And that's a term that most people don't really understand what it meant at that time. Uh, for most Americans, it was very clear that the problem with the Indians is that we were mistreating them. <laughs> um, uh, for other people, it was that the Indians were in our way. Uh, for Robert Campbell, it was certainly that they were being mistreated because the native peoples that he encountered as a young man in the fur trade, that started off as a business relationship, but mm -hmm. very quickly those became genuine friendships. Mm -hmm. And he strove to maintain contacts with certain families and individuals that he had met as a young through his whole adult life. Right. His work on the Indian Commission was very much an attempt to better the plight of the Native American. To talk for another day, but for a whole lack of reasons, the commission was unsuccessful and disbanded. Uh, it was only a five-year experiment. And Grant was extremely progressive in his Indian policy, so a lot of people don't realize that. And the last thing I'll say about it is give people an example. He was so progressive, he uh, appointed a Native American to be the head of the Indian Bureau. How, how, uh, yeah. Progressive, that is. Yeah, I mean, uh, doesn't uh, that make common sense? Yeah, <laughs> now exactly. Uh, and in fact, I think the current head of the Indian Bureau is the first Native American to hold that uh, role since since then, since Grant's wow. Department of the Interior. Department, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, I sometimes wonder. You you talk about Grant with his contribution. I mean, I should say Campbell with his his contributions to the West. I wonder if he also didn't help Grant with the idea of establishing Yellowstone as, as the park. That's an excellent question. I, I don't know the answer to that because that was our first national park and that was mm -hmm. during Grant's right. administration. So. Was, so you have somebody who is progressive with Native American relations and progressive as far as preservation. Uh, it's, it's really phenomenal. I, I don't think Grant gets the credit that he deserves for some of the things that he's done. Mm -hmm. He's done so much more than just help save the Union through his military. See, that goes back to our return to civility 
pay attention to what people around you are trying to accomplish. And many times, that's very interesting what you're saying, because those kind of conversations would take place around a table, around a meal. Around a, yeah, around a dinner table. Yeah, or like uh, after it's done, like walking to hear the band, you know. And, you know, those little conversations, how they would maybe spark something in someone's mind and and then progress from there. That's, that's fascinating. And one of the uh, chiefs from one of the tribes came in and was a dinner guest at Campbell House. He was one of, among many notable people. And who are some of those other notable people? Uh, well, the other famous military man in St. Louis, General Sherman. Right. Uh, Tecumseh Sherman, as he was born, but he later got the name uh, William, William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, uh, was a good close friend of the Campbells and a regular uh, visitor. Uh, and to highlight that, I love this story. Uh, later in the family history, uh, one of the Campbell's cousins was, was visiting the house, and this was in, the I think, the 1880s. And she'd come to pay a visit to her cousin, St. St. Louis, and she was just dumbfounded that while she was there, General Sherman just dropped by to say hello. <laughs> and, you know, he is one of, you know, after Grant, he is right. the most famous military man right. in America. He was the head of the army. And, and, and so, uh, so Sherman was one of them. Another famous uh, American general, a guy named William Harney, uh, who was the Campbell's neighbor. Uh, uh, the famous missionary Father DeSmet shared Robert's really? interest in uh, the West and it, it, the plight of Native Americans as well. Uh, the Campbells weren't Catholic, but they, uh, I think, saw what DeSmet was doing and, and felt strongly that that was a good thing. Um, in terms of women, Susan Blow, okay. who is famous, of course, as starting the first kindergarten in America, was a St. Louis, and she started it right here in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. She and her father, Henry, were, were regular visitors as well. Okay, wow. And Nellie Grant. And Nellie Grant. Yeah, the Grant's uh, oldest uh, daughter, well, their only daughter, in fact, um, uh, uh, was about the same age as Robert Campbell's son, Hugh, and they seem to be, uh, uh, as young people, socializing a lot we have often speculated there perhaps was maybe an interest in an attachment attachment there that never happened but it never but, happened right then, yeah <laughs> never went went any farther they needed another dinner <laughs> yeah. a different kind of dinner yeah well it might have worked out for that would have worked better for nelly because she had a very uh sad and unfortunate life in many respects so so this particular event, folks, the Farm Table to the Gilded Table, Sunday, September 25th, 2022, from 5.30 to 9.30. And how can people get a hold of tickets, or what should they do to get more information? The best way to get tickets um, is to go to the Campbell House's website. You can Google Campbell House Museum, but the website is campbellhousemuseum.org. Mm -hmm. And if you just click on events, it's the first event that's listed. You can... It lists all the details. It lists the chefs, where they're from, what they're cooking, um, how the evening will, will work. Uh, and there's a link there where you could buy a ticket. You select where you want to start. Yeah, just decide how you want to party first. Yeah. 1845 or 1875. That's right. You and can then go back in time or forward in time. Exactly. Okay. And then during the evening, you'll, you'll switch. So. Now, should people wear some kind of, um, mm. you know, Period dress or something like that? You could come as you are most comfortable. If that includes a period dress, terrific. 
but just be comfortable. You'll be outside. Well, I will not be wearing my hoop or corset. <laughs> <laughs> me either. I won't either. Yeah. <laughs> you made me do that one, Andy. <laughs> you made me do that one. <laughs> oh, this is a great event, and we have such marvelous history in this city. We do. And we need to take advantage of it so many times. The what I'm going to call the people who were born and raised here, like Mark and myself, we've not been to these places. I have been as a kid. I remember my parents took me, and I was like, some old person's house, and you know, there's all this stuff, like my grandma's stuff. Right, right. And it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't have that appreciation. And now, Suzanne, I got to say, I always have had appreciation for good food. So uh, the fact that it's melded together with the history is going to be really fascinating. And it's it's going to be a great event, folks. I encourage you to uh, get some tickets. Again, go to CampbellHouseMuseum.org, CampbellHouseMuseum.org. Closing words. The best way to come and taste history. Ooh, the best way to come and taste history. How can I top that? <laughs> Well, y'all come because the dinner's on. There you go. <laughs> Table set. And we're ready to welcome. Yeah. There you go. There you go. I want to thank you guys for coming in today. It's thank great you. having welcome. you in. You're always welcome back. Thank, thank you. you. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.